1 Corinthians 6, and we'll begin down in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And you can be seated. So last week we, we really discussed from chapter, from chapter 6 verse 12 down through about verse 16. This week is, is sort of the conclusion of that. And if you remember this, this section starting in verse 12 all the way through the end of, of chapter 7 is really a, a biblical theology of, of Christian sexual ethics. That is, what is, what does the Bible say about sexual ethics? What is, what is right and, and what is wrong? How are we as Christians to view sex? The Bible actually has a lot to say about that. And, and even in this section, Paul covers a lot of ground in just a chapter and a half. Uh, we see the good, we see the bad, and we even talked last time about liberties within sexual ethics. Um, again, we're keeping this PG. Uh, as always, we got kids, so uh, parents, uh, you can explain a lot of the details to your children, and you should. Uh, kids, you should ask your parents about uh, these issues. The specific situation, if you remember from last time in chapter 6, is that it seems like the Corinthians were actually visiting prostitutes. They were saying that since we're no longer under the Old Covenant law, we're no longer under the law of Moses, we got all this freedom, and because we got all this freedom, we can just go visit prostitutes. That was really the gist of their argument. Not only that, but they were saying, well, you know, the sexual desires is just another appetite. It's, it's like being hungry. It's like being thirsty. And what do you do when you're hungry? You eat. What do you do when you're thirsty? You drink. What do you do when you have any sort of sexual desire? We well, just go down to the temple and you hire a prostitute. That's what you do. And Paul goes, whoa, time out. No, no. This is, this is actually not what you do. What's interesting is that was all nonsense, by the way. The Corinthians knew better. That's why he says over and over, or do you not know? Or do you not know? Or do you not know? Because, they knew. They knew better, and they were making excuses. So what I, what I began last week is just called just the facts about Christian sexual ethics. We saw four facts last time. I'll just cover that briefly, and then we're going to see five more this morning. So last time we saw that there are liberties in all areas of Christian ethics, sexual ethics included. So there are liberties. The second one was that there are principles that guide those liberties. It's not just go, hey, do whatever you want to do. No, there are actually biblical limits to those liberties. Is it helpful? Does it build up? Does it dominate you? That Those sort of things. 
The third fact we saw is that Christians often justify sin. That's what the Corinthians were doing. They were justifying their sin. They knew it was wrong. They knew they shouldn't be doing it, but they were trying to justify it anyway. And the fourth is that every molecule of your body and your soul belong to God. All of it belongs to God. So those are the first four facts. Fifth fact this morning is that sexual intimacy is a one flesh union. It's a one flesh union. This is a no-brainer, but this is what Paul brings up. So take a look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So, so this is definitional, isn't it, to, to what we're talking about when we're talking about sex. The sexual intimacy creates a, a one flesh union. Very literally, a man and a woman become one flesh. They're, they're one body together. And that union is reserved solely for a husband and his wife. That's, that's the only place where that one flesh union is to be shared. It's not to be shared by anyone else. Now, he cites a verse here, actually. Um, it's a verse from Genesis chapter 2. I want you to look over at Genesis chapter 2 for a minute. Because this is really foundational. When I do premarital counseling, uh, we actually end up spending a lot of time in Genesis 1 through 3. There's a lot that's foundation, foundational to marriage in the just the first three chapters of the Bible. This is where God sort of lays the foundation for how... A man and a woman exist together in marriage, and actually it includes sexual intimacy. So Genesis chapter 2, and look down at verse 20. Genesis 2, starting verse 20. Then the Lord God, I'm sorry, that's not 20, that's 18. 20. Uh, the man gave names to all the livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not, in, not ashamed. All right, so we see actually a lot of things right here in just these few little verses. Uh, first of all, the man and the woman are both made in the image of God. They are both equal in God's sight in the sense of value and importance. They have different roles, but they are, in fact, equal. The second thing is that God created Eve specifically as a helper to Adam. Adam is the one that leads. Eve is, Eve is the one who helps him along. The second thing that we need to also, or the third thing that we need to understand is that this sacred union of marriage is something that God himself solidifies. It's a, there's a spiritual, divine aspect of marriage when a man and a woman come together in covenant. We also see that this, this covenant severs 
the relationship between parent and child, doesn't it? The man and the woman become a new family unit. This is hugely important, you guys, because one of the biggest problems in marriage is parental overreach into their adult children's lives. It really is. Mom-in-law has too much influence. doesn't matter which mom-in-law. Or father-in-law has too much influence. And it just causes all kinds of havoc when you don't understand that there is a severing of the family relationship. Does that mean you can't have a relationship with your married adult children or have a relationship with your parents? Of course it doesn't mean that. But they don't have a controlling interest in your marriage. Your primary dedication is to your spouse. All of that, of course, culminates into the one flesh union of intimacy. And this intimacy, by the way, is a very good thing because Adam and Eve, they're both standing there naked. They're looking at each other and the text says they're not what? They're not ashamed. There's no guilt. There's nothing wrong. There's no sin here. It's a good thing. God designed this. He did not design clothes until like a chapter later. They're naked. They are unashamed. This is a very good thing. And they are one flesh, is what verse 24 says. Now, the Bible indicates that there are basically two ways in which the the married couple is one flesh. So first is just simply physically, right? Right? That, That really is the definition of sex, is that two bodies become one together. That's, that's what it is. Um, there's this oneness that is designed to be enjoyed by a married couple. And this is the way that children are brought about. But there's also a second way in which the two become one. And that is actually through a spiritual union that God puts together in every legitimate, legitimate marriage. So turn over to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi. And let me show you this. Malachi chapter 2. So when a man and a woman come together in marriage, it's not just a physical union. You have to understand that. There there is the physical union side of it, but it's not just a physical union. There's actually a spiritual union that goes on as well. And that spiritual union happens because there has been a covenant made between these two people in the sight of God. And these bound them together. And so here God is actually chastising Israel for being faithless. The, the men are abandoning their wives. The wives are abandoning their husbands. And so in the midst of all this, God chastises them, and he talks about this spiritual union that goes on inside of marriage. So Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. And this is the second thing that you do. He's indicting Israel. He says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. He doesn't, he doesn't hear your worship. But you say, well, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. 
So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So the Israelites were being faithless to their wives. They were divorcing them. They were putting them away. They were saying, I'm done with you. And God says, no, no, you, you can't be done with them because I've joined these two together. And what did he put between them? A portion of his spirit. There is a spiritual union that goes on when a man and a woman covenant together before God. There just is. And I actually think this is true even if they're not Christians. I think there is something holy and sacred just about the institution of marriage all on its own that creates this binding together. And here we see that. This is why, by the way, Jesus says what God has put together, let not man separate. It's not just a physical issue. It's a spiritual issue as well. And I think he's referring to the oneness of the covenant of marriage. So go back to 1 Corinthians They were violating this design that God had made in the one flesh union. And so so what you need to understand, the reason I bring all this up is because Paul is going to make this argument. He's going to make a physical argument and he's going to make a spiritual argument. And and this is this is what we need to understand. So so the first is the physical side of the argument. The second is the spiritual side of the argument. So verse 15 again. Do you not know that your members, your bodies, excuse me, are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. So so when someone goes to a prostitute and they have sexual relations with anyone not their spouse, they are becoming one flesh with them in a physical way. There's no spiritual connection, right? Because there's no marriage covenant that, that binds them together, but they're they're coming together in a physical way that is not intended by God. Here's the spiritual reality in verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord, talking about salvation, becomes one spirit with him. So when someone becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit come, comes inside of us, and now we are one spirit with Christ. We are union, or we, we have a union with Christ that did not exist before. So the Spirit is inside of us. We don't have a physical union with Jesus. We have a spiritual union with Jesus. And because we have a spiritual union with Jesus, we can no longer accept a physical union with anyone other than our spouse. That's the argument he's making. You need both the, the spiritual union and the physical union to be a legitimate physical union. Say, Jason, I need an illustration. I got an illustration. You ready for the illustration? Refrigerator magnets. That's my illustration. You take two of those round refrigerator magnets, you put them one way, they just click, don't they? You flip it around so it's like negative on negative, and you can smash them together, but there's an internal resistance, isn't there, to them coming together. They don't naturally fit. That's how it is with sexual immorality. You can smash it together. Physically, you're strong enough to push them together. But there is no internal connection that naturally binds them. That's how it is with sexual immorality. You can put the bodies together, but because there's no covenant union, they are not meant to go together that way. What God intends is the North Pole and the South Pole to come together. There needs to be that internal covenant spiritual connection that is only legitimized within the covenant of marriage. 
So sexual intimacy is a one flesh union, physically and spiritually. The sixth fact is that we are commanded to flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Look at verse 18. This is just a straight up command. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So this is the command. I think it's a command that we're all familiar with. We all know this. Hopefully this doesn't surprise you that this is in the Bible. This is, this is pretty basic. As Christians, we are commanded to do this. We are to flee. We're to run. When you flee, that word flee, it means to run from imminent danger. Sexual immorality is imminent danger. This is the, the Joseph principle from Genesis, right? When Potiphar's wife is trying to get him to sleep with her and he just runs. So whatever the temptation is, get away from it. It will destroy you. Listen to Proverbs 6. Solomon says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. The reality is, run away. Do whatever you need to do to flee from sexual immorality. Run. Get away from it. Get get as far away as you can. And it's not just the physical act, is it? Jesus makes it very clear. It's also who you look at and what your internal desires are. Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So even even viewing a woman or, or ladies viewing a man in a sexual way is sin. Jesus says, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your foot, do whatever you need to do. And I don't think he's being literal here, right? He's not actually saying, go gouge out your eyes. This is hyperbole. He's saying you need to do extreme things to get sin and temptation out of your life. Whatever it is you have to do, get rid of your smartphone, get rid of your streaming service, quit your job where the guy keeps coming on to you. Stop flirting with that that other lady. Put the computer in the family room. Get covenant eyes. Whatever it is, run away from all of it. Get it out of your life. It will consume you if you don't have it under control. That's the Genesis 4 principle. Sin is crouching at your door. You either master it or it'll master you, but someone's winning. You have to get it under control. Interestingly, the, the word here in Greek, flee, makes it very clear that this is a continual running. This isn't just like a one-time thing. I think a lot of times when, when people come to faith in Jesus, they think, oh, okay, well, I'm on this kind of like spiritual high. Like, I'm good. Jesus saved me. Uh, my sins are forgiven. It's going to be great from here on out. Sorry about your luck. That is not how it works. From the point that you start following Jesus, you are now swimming upstream from the world and the flesh and the devil, and the rest of your life is going to be an absolute battle to put the sin 
that you desire to do to death. Jesus says, if anyone follow me, he take up his cross daily. Every single day we are putting these sins to death. That Your cross is not some irritating situation that you have to put up with. Your cross is your sin. You put it to death every single day. Paul says to mortify your flesh. You have to do this. This is the long haul battle. This does not go away. Sometimes it gets easier. Sometimes it does not. But every single day you have to covenant in your mind that you will put your flesh, your sinful flesh to death. That's why the book of Hebrews says, do not grow weary in doing good because it is hard. Flee from sexual immorality. Fact number seven. Sexual sin uniquely impacts the body. It uniquely impacts the body. Look at verse 18 again. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, this is kind of a weird phrase. In fact, there are like dozens and dozens of pages written on exactly what it is that he's trying to, to say here. And, and I think the straightforward explanation is just the most convincing. That sexual sin just has a direct impact on our physical bodies. In, in a way that a lot of other sins do not. So, so lying, for instance, it's not primarily harmful to my body. Stealing is not primarily harmful to my body. Being greedy or being a swindler or those kind of things. Now, you go, well, what about drug use? What about the drunkard? Doesn't that affect your body? Well, it kind of, yeah, sure, I'll grant you that. There are some sins that do. But I think we can all grant that, that sexual immorality specifically is sin that we are committing with our physical body in a way that we shouldn't be committing. And therefore, it is impacting our physical body. So there's just something about sexual sin that is unique. It's a sin against our own body, and it's actually a sin against the other person's body as well. Now, a lot of times, sexual sin is justified. Well, well, we love each other. You actually can't love somebody by sinning with them. You can't. It's impossible. You might lust after one another, but you are not actually enjoying worshiping God through that sin by sexual immorality. It's just not possible. You can't do it. It's lust, or maybe you're using the other person. But true sexual love is only expressed in the context of a one-man, one-woman covenant of marriage. That's the only way it's, it's expressed. I think there's also an aspect in where Genesis 2 comes into play in that this union is designed to be shameless. It's designed to have no guilt. And actually where nakedness is celebrated between a husband and a wife. Um, if you guys haven't read Proverbs 5 or Song of Solomon sometime recently, uh, you should do that. It's, it's kind of a hoot. Like, there are literally, there are literally songs in the Bible about Spouse's anatomy, right? They're celebrating. It's like the original rap songs. That's, that's really what this is about, right? Her belly is a heap of wheat. Her teeth are like sheep. Her hair is like a flock of goats. Her nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. That's biblical, y'all. It's in the Bible. That's cool stuff. But can I tell you something? It's cool stuff. Inside of marriage. 
inside the covenant. Outside of the covenant, it's not cool. It's sinful. Listen to this. Uh, This is Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19. He says, three things are too wonderful for me. Four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on the rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. He's talking about the wedding night. Like, everybody knows, like, it's just this, this amazing thing that goes on that's beautiful and pure in the right context. In the right context, it's amazing. It's this physical union that is legitimized by the spiritual union that God has created in marriage. But if the spiritual union is not there, the physical union should not be there either. The body is affected in a way that it shouldn't be. And by the way, I don't think he's talking primarily about STDs. I don't think that's the point, or, or AIDS, or, or you know, getting pregnant out of, out of wedlock. I, I don't think he's talking about some sort of weird harm. I think he's just saying, you are violating your sacred body that God has given you in a way that you shouldn't be doing. And it's primarily against your own body. All right, eighth fact. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So this is the glorious truth that God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside every single person who is a believer. This is the glorious promise of the new covenant. Remember the old covenant? The Holy Spirit only dwelled in in kings and and occasionally a prophet and, and maybe a priest here and there. But in the new covenant, through faith in Jesus, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, indwells every single believer. In fact, put a put a bookmark here and go back one book over to Romans 8. We see this glorious truth in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is really sort of like the Holy Spirit chapter of, of Romans. It's really all about the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And Paul explains this truth in really amazing ways. It's really quite beautiful. So Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What he's saying is that salvation hinges on whether or not someone has the spirit of God inside of them. That's why he says over and over again, if the Spirit's in you, if Christ is in you, if the Spirit lives in you. See, the issue of eternal life and forgiveness of sins is about whether or not you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Because a lot of people call themselves Christians, but they don't actually have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So which leads to the question, well, how do you know if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you? So you've got two people. Both of them claim to be Christians. Both of them claim that they love Jesus. Both of them claim that they go to church. Both of them claim that they read the Bible. 
one of them is filled with the Holy Spirit and the other one is not filled with the Holy Spirit. How would you know? How would you know? Well, it's not rocket science. You look at their life. That's how. Because if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, the Holy Spirit will change you. You'll have the fruit of the Spirit. You will be growing in love. You will be growing in peace. You will be growing in patience. You will be growing in kindness. You'll be growing in faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit. You'll be growing in your desire to obey the Lord Jesus. You'll be growing in your hatred for your sin. You'll be growing in how quickly you repent from your sin. You'll never reach perfection, but you will desire perfection. Not to earn God's favor, but because you love God and you already have his favor. That's how you know. That's how you know if the Spirit is inside of you. You know, most people, when they, when they have company come over, they kind of they tidy up their house a little bit, right? Get it get a little better, not a lot, doesn't have to be perfect, but they tidy it up a little bit. What if you knew you had Jesus coming over, right? You got an email, and somehow you could verify it's from heaven. Jesus coming down, and he's coming to your, to your house. You'd probably tidy it up a little bit, wouldn't you? At least do some dishes, maybe a little laundry, something like that. Can I tell you something? You have Jesus, not inside your house, inside your body, by virtue of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You actually have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit inside of you as a believer. What's the ethical implication? The ethical implication is that if God is inside of you, you would want to purge yourself of all things that would be offensive to God. You would want to get rid of those things. You'd, you'd clean yourself up. In fact, look back at 1 Corinthians 6. That, that's his implication. You go, okay, well, so I got the Holy Spirit inside of me. What, what does that do for me? You got God in you. You got God in you. You want to pursue purity because it's God's home. That's what you want to do. God is living inside of you. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When you became a Christian, your body became sacred space. As holy as Solomon's temple, as holy as the temple of Herod. It's where God's glory dwells in his people. You became a temple for God. He saved your soul, but he's also working on your body. Your physical body is important to God. In fact, it's so important, it has eternal implications. Who gets cast into the lake of fire in Revelation 21? It's all the unbelievers. Is it just their souls that are cast into the lake of fire? No, it's their bodies that are in the lake of fire. Who enjoys the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21? It's the saints. Is it just their souls? No, it's their resurrected bodies who enjoy the new earth forever and ever. God cares about your body. He cares about what you do with it. He cares about who you show it to. He cares about what you do with your body with other people. God wants his home, which is your body, to be filled with modesty and filled with good works. He wants purity. He wants holiness. By the way, it's kind of an interesting side note. You know where the Corinthians would go to find their sexual fulfillment? They would go to the pagan temple. 
Do you know where Christians can go to find sexual fulfillment? It's also a temple. It's your body within the covenant of marriage. God didn't, God didn't go, nah, I'm not, I'm not going to give my people sex. No, he said, I'm going to give them sex in the greatest context possible. Within the covenant of this union that represents the love between Jesus and his church. And we are free to enjoy it. This is something we need to understand. God is not against sexual fulfillment. His temple, your body, is designed for sexual fulfillment within the covenant of marriage, within those confines. Ninth fact. Your body is actually not even your body. Whose body is it? It's God's body. He's actually not even living in a borrowed home. He's living in his own home. Verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So it turns out the body you have is not even your own body. My body's not my body. It's God's body. He lives there, and he's not even a guest. He's actually the owner. He owns every square inch of your body. And that's, that's not in a mean way. He's the creator of the universe who has loved you and redeemed you and adopted you, and he's purchased you body and soul. He's purchased every bit of you, all of you, and he has blessed you with this body. And he bought that all with the precious blood of his own son, Jesus. So when you were in the depths of sin and you had no knowledge of God, you didn't care about God, you were just going your own way, you didn't even know who God was, he made the ultimate sacrifice for you. And through faith in the gospel, he brought you back from the dead. And he bought you. You go, well, that sounds a lot like slave master talk. Well, there's a part of it where it is slave master talk, but there's also a part of it where he's our loving heavenly father. There's also a part of it where he is the God of the universe who dwells inside of our bodies. And I want you to get this because our, our culture is just wrapped up with bodies, what they look like, what they don't look like, and, and on and on. Your soul is precious to God, but your body is precious to God. God has made your body Remember Jeremiah 1? Who knit your body together? God knit your body together. He loves your body. Those are infinitely precious parts that you have. Because every part of your body is God's blood-bought home. Is it a perfect body? Of course not. We've lived in our home six years now. And, and we have this like continual fixer-upper thing going on. Like it's, It feels like we're never going to get there. <laughs> Um, it's just ongoing, constant deterioration and overcoming the deterioration. And But you know what? I love my home. It's my sacred space. It's I, I would do anything to protect it. Your body is God's home. He loves your body. He has redeemed and purchased your body, imperfect as it may be. You go, well, what's the ethical implication? It's the last... It's the last little sentence. So glorify God in your body. Give him glory. Worship 
God with your body, not just with your voice, not just with telling people about Jesus, not just with giving or singing or praying. That's all good. But make sure that your body, and especially as it relates to sexual purity and modesty, is the home that you would want God to have. That God would be proud to be in your body. He's already purchased it, so he loves you unconditionally. But make sure that your body is a pure temple. And you say, well, I failed at that. Well, he hasn't left your body. So the remodel project ain't over. There's room for improvement, isn't there? And God will give us the grace to do that. You guys glorify God with your soul and with your body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you that you have redeemed us body and soul. May we be pure in your eyes. May you forgive us when we sin in this way, Lord. It's so easy to lust. It's so easy to desire things that we should not have, to transgress, Lord. And so we come again to your your son who gives us perfect forgiveness, and we praise you for that perfect forgiveness. Now may we go and glorify you with our bodies. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.